Welcome to Where's Home Really with me, Jimmy Famarewa. This is a podcast where my guests answer questions on origins, identity, culture and belonging. Each week, I speak to a well-known name about how their family and their heritage has impacted their lives and careers, and I ask them about the things that evoke that unique, grounding sense of home. To get these answers, we touch on four key elements, which are a person, a place, a phrase, and a plate. Now, one of them for me would be a phrase, and I'm going to speak Yoruba here just to kind of amuse any listening relatives. Uh, And it's a very short phrase or word, and it's literally emi or me in a kind of questioning way. And I really associate it with my mum, who would always say, you know, emi in this really kind of (laughs) accusatory way if anything was kind of outside our traditions or outside who she was or who she saw herself as. And it's kind of something that I think really taps into how so many of the lessons I grew up with were these quite inscrutable but really powerful modelled behaviours that kind of, I kind of often wasn't sure exactly what it was that I was being told, but I got it. So that's something that makes me feel like I am fully at home and reminds me of the people that have made me who I am. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what brings that same feeling to today's guest. We had the profound horror of watching a black man be murdered in front of our eyes on film. And that really shook everyone into paying attention in the first instance to their notions of separateness, identity, inclusiveness, all of that. However, how much of that is sincerely all the way through and how much of it is performative, time will tell. Today's guest is an actor. Born in Bristol and raised in Gloucestershire, she has become one of Britain's most critically acclaimed stage and screen talents. She first made her name on stage and starred in productions of Julius Caesar, His Dark Materials, Great Expectations and Richard II, a production that was the first time that Shakespeare's play was performed by a company made up entirely of women of colour. She's also become a recognisable big and small screen presence, with film roles including Invictus opposite Morgan Freeman, plus TV's Doctor Who, EastEnders, Line of Duty, and perhaps most notably in the Netflix mega-hits Bridgerton and Queen Charlotte as the indomitable, ever-quotable Lady Danbury. Adjurando, welcome. Thanks very much, Jimmy. God, that's quite a list, isn't it? I know. I always feel slightly like, I don't know, do I feel bad? Do I feel guilty when I kind of have to really run through those lengthy intros and, you know, I just go into one? It's quite a weird way to start a conversation. Yeah, I suppose it is. With all those uh, praises of someone's life, you kind of go, Oh, that's an interesting selection you've gone for there. It is such a joy to have you here. <laughs> we've sp- we we were just talking about the fact off mic that we've spoken previously, mm-hmm. but it was in kind of COVIDy Zoom time, so it was it just a screen. Mm, yeah, but I'm so excited about learning a bit more about your home and a bit more about you. So I always like to start by kind of throwing the show title back at the guest and just seeing what their instant reaction is. So if I say, where's home really? What's your first thought? So those of us from the global majority who live as a national minority uh, (laughs) always get the question, uh, the where are you from question. Yes, of course. 
Uh, no, but where are you really from? That one. Mm. And we all chuckle to ourselves, rolling our eyes heavenwards at the same time. For many of us, it's a multi-layered question, isn't it? Mm. Some people have a super clear instant, this is home. It's got no wrinkles in it. It's a very straightforward answer. And I suppose for me, I have a very small person. That's where I kind of go to when I think about it. It's like, where does your small person feel at home? So my small person is lying in a field in the Cotswolds. I'm about six. It's lying in a in a field of long grass, which is taller than me. And I can see tall buttercups and uh, long seeded grass and the sky is blue and it's probably got vapor trails in it and you can hear the bees buzzing and the sun is shining and that's home. Then another sense of home is every time I step onto the red earth of Ghana, something visceral happens and it makes me cry. Then the other sense of home, which is something I've really come to in the last 10 years, I would say, is lying in the sea floating in the sea and that sense of just being held yeah. and all the weight is taken off and I'm just like okay I want to get into the nitty-gritty of your experience and journey through those various places go on nitty-gritty oh verboten really no, it's on. about the enslaved people at the bottom wow. of the ship particularly okay. the women when they'd gone through everybody else wow okay so um that is a really, really good thing to learn and to know because I think you're just kind of casting around for these phrases that you've heard and it's like, no. Not that one. Good. No, strike listen, that one from the strike list. Strike that one. And thanks to my youngest, super right on, Daisy Kate for that Amazing. one. For putting mummy straight on that one. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay, well, I've learned something there. Mm. We will get into the details. Yes. <laughs> 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 of that. While we're talking about places, why don't we just start off with your place? Is there a specific place that you can pin it to? It's the Cotswolds. It's childhood Cotswolds. Mm. So one that was really important to me when I was a kid was there was a wood. I love trees. Trees is my thing. Um, <laughs> uh, there was a wood next to the playing fields, which is where the swings and the roundabouts were, but also where the cricket pitch was and the football and all of that. Um and it was a bluebell wood. So in the spring, it was a mass of mm. bluebells. And there was a little copse in it. You'd see lots of rabbits in it. And I would go in there with a packet of juicy fruit and a stack of Secret Seven books. And I would just sit and read in the copse in the bluebell wood oh, wow. on my own. I was a bit of a dweeby kid like that. So has that always been an innate thing that made you feel at home like I noticed that both of those memories you're on your own there's like solitude there was yeah. there was there was that something that that you like coveted and craved I suppose when I think of home I think of somewhere where I'm off duty mm. and because I think because of growing up in the Cotswolds with my dad and my brother uh and me being the only black people for about 70 million miles around there was a sense of being in company and always being slightly on duty, sort of slightly curating yourself. Mm. It, like from really, really small, before you even had a sense of that was what was going on. Yeah. On my own, in nature, off duty. Yeah. That's a definite sense of home for me. Was there a point at which you found a certain belonging or you found out kind of like who you were away from, you know, those kind of little cocooning hidey holes? Yeah, in, uh... no. Listen... I was 
a biff up kid. <laughs> I was jumping, climbing. I had loads of friends. Where does that come from? Is that just innate? Uh, do you think? I have both my parents are biff up kids right. in their way. You know, they're dynamic. My dad had to leave his country and he had to make the best of it somewhere else. So he did. My mother married an African. Mm. And there was a, you know, family were not happy. Yeah. So they're biff up kids, you yeah, know, they yeah. they have an appetite for life and a curiosity about the world and they just dive in. Yeah. And if it's tricky, well, work your way around it. Make it <laughs> make it work for you. That's something they inculcated in yeah. me and my younger brother. Just, just, just to get on with it. It was a childhood that was full of delight and mm. an appreciation of nature and the freedom to run here, climb over that thing, go and play with them, bash up that kid, you know, <laughs> play, you know, do, protect, make stories up, do, you know, do make mud pies, do, all of that stuff, you know. <laughs> the other thing that is like a running motif for people that grow up with different cultural forces at home and conspicuously different to a lot of the people around them is this notion of code switching and being able to to play act, to speak a, a different way, to yeah. be a different way with different people. Yeah. Is that something that you kind of felt quite adept at? Because, you know, in the kind of armchair psychology way, it's like, oh, she became an actor. and That's she... right, she did. <laughs> and I don't think that's... Uh, I do think the two are connected. I was always very good at... Um, playing and pretending and acting and doing those things. Language-wise, my voice is pretty standard RP, middle class, and it was at primary school. And I remember going to a friend's house and uh, uh, my friend's mum saying, why can't you talk like our ad? She's got a lovely voice. And immediate note to self, change voice, change voice. So my accent became much more like that. And it stayed like that. And now, see, I can't lose. There are no, certain I vowels which are like... Yeah, I I lived in yeah I lived in uh, uh, Bath for a year and like met Bath in Bath yeah Yeah. and met my uh, now wife when she lived in Bristol and yeah I do remember that kind of when you said it earlier I was like oh yeah people getting off the bus and saying cheers drive yeah like that yeah yeah yeah. always you've got to do that (laughs) you've got to do that I love that because my mum's from Liverpool and my grandfather on the English side they're all from Yorkshire. My speech developed in Leeds. If I'm around people from the north, I drift north. It's a bit like are you just putting on a voice. What are you doing? What are you doing? And then I go to Ghana. I don't speak Fanti because my father spoke to us when we were little. But you know, who else was he going to have the conversation mm-hmm. with in the Cotswolds or even in Leeds? I can hear Fanti being spoken and go, "That's Fanti." I can hear it, mm. and I, and I can understand bits and pieces. But my Fanti is terrible. So if we go to Ghana. Or actually, or even if I'm speaking to my father and I say something or I repeat something, he'll be like, no, no, no. And uh, he'll say it back to me and I'll say it again. And, oh. and, and I'm like, well, don't get cross with me. You could have got this in yeah. from the day. Yeah, that, it's, it's interesting that because I definitely have that. This kind of weird seesaw of like blame where you're like, you're getting absolutely slaughtered for how terrible your pronunciation is of your kind of mother tongue and you're like well you know I could have like you know I'm trying and like yes, you know you could have done you could have job. tried harder to exactly. when I was at a younger age yeah. and a sponge while we are talking about language and mm. phrasing let's go to your phrase then what are you going to go for my phrase is keep smiling that's my dad's phrase keep smiling and when my brother and I were younger it, it used to be the thing you'd be like, oh, dad. It'd be the roll the eyes, look at each other like, oh. 
because it's yeah. like just this annoying phrase that keeps smiling. What's even mean keep smiling? What's wrong with you? So we'd be sort of all tetchy about it. But, you know, as I get older, you kind of go, it feels like a revolutionary call to arms. Mm. You know, in all circumstances, life is hard. Mm. Life is difficult. And keep smiling feels like... Yeah, it's like a power ballad yeah, almost, you know. Yeah. So uh, my brother and I have both revised our opinion on our father's level of irritating <laughs> phrases and gone, mm, that's pretty good. I'm going to yeah, put that in my back pocket. Yeah. And also, life is difficult. So the sort of revolution of going, and I will find the joy in this. Mm. And I will, you know, ring fence the joy in me yeah, as well. Yeah. Have you always been capable of doing that and thinking of you know coming to London and you were living in squats right and I moved into no uh, listen it was fantastic you'd be 20 21 um, and you move to Brixton when you've come from the Cotswolds you get the opportunity to live for free in a massive Victorian house Yes, you do have to lay the concrete floors. And if you want to have a night without drafts, you do have to put the glass in the window frame, the window frame that you have just built. What a fantastic time. Mm. And when are you going to be more resilient to learn those silky skills than in your late teens, early 20s? A lot of actors struggle in various ways and have interesting paths towards working in that environment. But I imagine having been through things like that, being capable, being resourceful, and for that to be such a part of your identity, when you start arriving, uh, you know, at prestigious plays and drama productions or film sets on TV sets, did you feel like you had a different attitude to it and you had that keep smiling mantra? Do you feel that your background almost kind of has given you a different appreciation for the world or has that not really come into it? It's hard to say because I don't know, I can't compare myself Mm. to anybody else. So things that I know that I love, in another life, I would love to have been an architect. What we do is architecture of its own. You have an idea and then you make something exist. Yeah. Um, Whether it's a a book, a podcast or a a play or a character or whatever it, piece of music, Mm. whatever. Mm. You have an idea and you make, and and from your mind, it comes into existence by force of will, collaboration. I love sets. I love the back of sets. Mm. I love crews. I love carpenters. I love designers. I love composers. I love people in the act of creation. Mm. The clean space that is suddenly transformed into something. Say, for instance, we're doing Bridgerton. Um, I will be having chats about my costume. And why do I drill into that? Because the act of the creation of the look of that person tells you so many things about who that person is, what their journey in life has been, how they've got to, you know, what is their... I'm on duty. Mm, when mm. they switch on, what do they look like? Yeah, yeah, How do they present yeah. themselves? All that stuff has come through life experiences. I love that construction. Welcome back to Where's Home Really, where my guest is Adjoa Ando. Hello, Jimmy. Amazing that you mentioned Bridgerton. I feel like it was such a kind of crazy phenomenon. And now Queen Charlotte has followed and... There's been such a rapid, almost kind of lifetime to it that I think people maybe forget like what an unbelievable jolt it was and what a huge success it was and how amazing it was for a performer like you to kind of be right at the heart of that and the conversations that it initiated around um, 
casting of period dramas and things like that. Absolutely. Do you, yeah. Do you kind of feel any of that, that the sort of breakneck nature of it, that you're still kind of acclimatising to what happened with it? Or do you feel like you've, you know, it's all registered? Things that I think are interesting. I think a mere three years ago, it was a radical thing. Mm. But now I think it's not radical. I mean, I think I think the rest of the industry and storytelling and also things are, are much more like, mm-hmm. yeah, where's your point? <laughs> I think things move really quickly. They can feel glacial for a long time. And then once somebody rips the plaster off yeah. or opens that particular Pandora's box, you're running free and clear. So I think it would be fair to say that in that regard, Bridgerton has had a seismic impact mm. on storytelling. On the other hand, let's never get too giddy goat about it because Mm. still the conversations, I would say, yes, we may be doing that in period drama. What are the dramas we're commissioning? Who are the commissioners? Mm. So it's sort of window dressing and back office, I call it. (laughs) And the back office (laughs) tends to generally be still everything that it was. I mean, in the middle of that, you know, we had the profound horror of watching a black man be murdered in front of our eyes on film and that really shook everyone into paying attention in the first instance to their notions of separateness identity Mm. inclusiveness all of that however how much of that is uh, sincerely all the way through and how much of it is performative time will tell yeah Um, and so I think the jury is still out on that but I think in my particular area, I think there has been a shift. I don't know that that shift has gone through into all contemporary drama, and I still think there's a lot of nuanced stuff in there. But I hope that the notion of the horrible, horrid phrase, colorblind casting, (laughs) uh, which doesn't apply to Bridgerton, I hope that people have a clarity about what they mean now, because Bridgerton was not that. Shondaland call it colour conscious casting Mm. now. Um, I don't think there was a phrase originally. I think people just got on with it. A a casting which is ignoring of colour, shall Mm, we say. I would say, look at David Copperfield with Dev Patel, uh, Armando Iannucci production. That was Mm. because you could have an East Asian heritage actor being the father of a blonde child, yeah. for example. Yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, or, yeah. Or, or an African heritage mother being the mother of a nation. I don't think Bridgerton was doing that because if we were applying that logic to Bridgerton, then we'd have to say, are you saying that Daphne Bridgerton uh, would really have been Asian, but you just decided to cast, <laughs> yeah, her, yeah, cast yeah. her blonde? No, that's not what you're... That's, <laughs> no, no, that, no. that We weren't telling that story. No. We were telling a story where we, um, we were saying that, you know, Britain was the centre of this maritime Mm. empire, Mm. slaving empire, commercial empire, Mm. trading empire. Britain went to the world and the world came to Britain in in various ways. And Mm. so you would see the variety of all that. Mm. And plus the historical truths of the presence of people of colour in in numbers uh, in that period. 20,000 in in the area around St. Giles, called the Blackbirds of St. Giles. Queen Charlotte that whole African heritage conversation there. People from across the Middle East and the Far East Mm. and the Near East. I mean, you know, Bridgerton's not a documentary, so obviously you get the on-steroids version, (laughs) just as you get the on-steroids version of psychedelic green fabric that would never have been used for Ariana Grande on a quintet. Yeah, I I did note that there seemed to be, and I think this is an example of maybe not recognising how far we've come, how fast, and what uh, Bridgerton kind of exemplifying that in some ways, Mm. that there were a few articles written about the fact that shows like Bridgerton, there's a danger in them making 
making that period look too like racially harmonious or people taking it as fact. Like, yeah, you know. but there was a danger before of making that period look monochromatic yes, and people yeah. taking that as fact. Yes. And I think that we have to interrogate these status quos mm. because they really speak into things that are really important in the moment today. The beaches of Dunkirk, the first people on those beaches were the British Indian Army. The last people off those beaches were the British Indian Army. When you start to look at those contributions and the mm. way um, a variety of um, differently heritaged people have been in the story of Great Britain mm. for centuries, it makes the conversation about where are you from a different conversation. Yeah, Because yeah. You, you kind of go, the contribution of many people has made this nation what it is. Yeah. So when we look at who this nation is made up of, mm. how we reflect on this nation, we have to look at all of that history. We've talked about a lot of historical figures, but I want to ask you about your person, which might be a historical figure, might be someone closer to home or your family. Who are you going to go for? This one can either be obvious or it can be tricky. How did you find it? Oh, well, I'm kind of split on this. That's fine. We can have a, we can have a couple. I, I, because... I, I allow people to flagrantly break the rules. Thank you. <laughs> One is my mum, and it's a very particular moment. It's a Saturday afternoon. Uh, it's sitting in what we call the dining room. It's about 1971, and we're watching Now Voyager, Paul Heinwright and Betty Davis, and we have a bar of Fry's Peppermint Cream. Oh, yes. And a box of Kleenex tissues. Because we would weep our way through the film while gorging on minty chalk. For me, that is an absolute sort of microcosmic mm. sensation of being Was home. It, it's yeah. me and my mummy on the sofa, <laughs> weeping over a black and white film on a set and was it was it ritual as well was this something that you did together that you kind of established and was she kind of that kind of person that it was the treat of a minty chocolate and the, and the, the yes. shared kind of catharsis of crying over this uh yes uh, and it might and you know film. it could be it could be a different film it might be the mm. warlord with charlton heston you know so that's not a dad memory it's absolutely specifically mum but there's something so intimate mm. and precious precious you know i love that so um yeah so that yeah. that would be that and then the other person is my younger brother because he sort of did the same journey with me mm. and then we went off and did our different things we both were punk rockers. We Music is our thing. Amazing. And, you know, I did a production of Richard III earlier this year and he came and composed the music for me. And it was what was, he, he lives in LA now. And what was so great was to just go, he'd, he'd, he'd play something and I'd be like, yeah, if you did the thing, he'd go, oh yeah, like this. And he'd be like, yes. So we're still quite simpatico like that. I love that. And um, I just, I love him. Yeah, he's my most intimate, close-souled yeah. person, yeah. I would say. Yeah, that kind of sibling telepathy and, and also someone that you don't necessarily get to see or as as much as maybe you'd yeah, like. Yeah, we definitely are making a point of seeing each other yeah. much more now. You've really beautifully evoked like the environment of the house you grew up in. To what degree have you kind of carried things over into like the home that you've got with, you know, your husband and your children? And yeah, it's... Are there things that you've kind of sought to recreate in an urban environment that you kind of really remember or or just the way you do things? Like, are there any kind of holdovers from then or things that you were like, absolutely not, we are changing that, I'm the boss now? Things that I've definitely changed is 
probably to my children's detriment, actually, is I would buy my Twinkle for Girls comic on a Saturday morning from the newsagents, and uh, then it would sit on the sofa forlornly for most of Saturday whilst I hoovered and dusted and did the chores. And yeah, I've completely ditched that one for my kids. It's like, nah, man, I'm not making you do all the cleaning. I'm just not. So, you know, they've had to learn all those things later. They'd ask me questions about the washing machine and I'd be like, why don't you? Oh, yeah, I didn't teach you that. I suppose one of the big things that I've held on to is Christmas. Nice. Decorating the tree, paper chains, Johnny Mathis and Mary's boy child. There has to be the smell of Christmas. Um, Quite often I will still do the oranges with the cloves in. There has to be a wreath on the front door. Notes to Santa Claus. Always, you know, the mince pie, the milk and sherry for Santa and a carrot for the reindeer. Mm -mm -mm. All the things. I still have the wooden nativity scene that my dad was given by his friend Carl Heinz in 1960. That oh, comes amazing. out every year. Christmas is such a key one, isn't it? Because yeah. you you become like easygoing people are suddenly like dictators over my dead body. Yes. We have to do it this yes. way. And yes. obviously often you're in sort of union with someone who had a completely different Christmas. Oh, and you're, that is, you're describing, you're describing exactly. <laughs> yes. And food, of course, is one way that this manifests. I have seen you say in the past that that cooking and food is something that you're experiencing in a different way now. Your children are grown up and mm. you can kind of, you know... Enjoy know, it, you mean. It, yeah, like, yeah, mm. you can. Like, it's, it's not, it's of not as much of a battleground. So let's get onto your plate. What is the dish or meal or taste for you that gives you that same fries, mint, cream, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and a weepy feeling. It's fairly um, bog standard. It's jollof, chito, yes. and tilapia. Oh, wow. And a bottle of club beer. <laughs> and I love rice. I don't think there's any sort of rice I don't like, from mm. risotto to rice pudding and yeah. everything in between. Yes, like with a dish like jollof, like loads of different food cultures and nations have a kind of you know, a steamed pilaf style or pilau style yeah. rice. And almost everyone is incredible. Biryani, incredible. Yeah. Tadding, incredible. Yeah. Like every single one is Listen, great. Listen, egg fried rice, I'm, egg I'm fried happy. rice, incredible. Yeah. So what is it to you about that particular combination? And obviously it comes from your West African uh, Yeah. Was there something, was there a particular specialness about it or a particular it's, connection that you feel when you're when you're kind of eating that? It's a home thing. Mm. It's a feeling of home. It's mm. best in Ghana. <laughs> um, and uh, I also like Red Red and that's very Cape Coasty. And yeah, when I'm in Ghana, I feel like I've properly landed mm. when I have... I'm sitting in front of a plate of those items and the beer is cold and it's just there. It's a taste I really enjoy. And there are other particular Ghanaian foods that I'm, you know, Gary, no, (laughs) no. Not feeling that. So, um, yeah, you're not into your, your paps or swallows, the almost kind of semolina-like... No, uh, no I'm really ed- not. ...edible utensils that no. we eat all across West Africa. No. And I wonder for you to be able to just say that, because quite often your authenticity as an You're obliged Nigerian, to go, mm, yeah, delicious, exactly. all of it, all of it, all of it. And it's like, do you know what, though? Mm, mm. I can still own my ghanaian and say, that bit I love. Mm, not feeling that so much. 
I like to own it even more in that way. Yeah. I still like eating with my hands. Mm. My dad and I used to do that. If we'd go to an Indian restaurant, for example, that'd be mm. the closest thing we were growing up. And we'd eat with our hands and yeah. we'd be like, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, amazing. Um, Ghanaian food, West African food more broadly, but Ghanaian food is something we're seeing a lot more of in London in particular and all across all across the world, really. And having that depth of flavour, that dynamism discovered by a whole range of people, would you agree? I think what's happened is, so I have West Indian members of my family. Mm. And I know that when I first moved to London, in order to get acting jobs, I had to be able to use West Indian accents because there were African stories were not, Mm. that storytelling wasn't happening in the same way now. I think it's probably sort of switched around a bit. It's probably probably leaning more Africa than Caribbean. Yeah, and Um, you have kind of Caribbean heritage actors that have to like bone up on their kind of Nigerian or Ghanaian accent. Yeah, so I think, and I think similarly with food. Right. So I just I just think there's that expansion is happening in all areas. Yeah. It's happening in creative stuff, whether it's writing or filmmaking or mm. music or mm. eating. I've always found the separation mm. bizarre. I get it, but I, I've always found it bizarre. Because, Between Caribbean heritage community yeah, and the uh, African. Like when I first moved to London, it's like, is there a hostility? between? <laughs> because I grew up in the Cotswolds and we were all just... Black. <laughs> so uh, anybody I met, we were just black. Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. and similarly with you know family and friends, and I know my dad's friendship groups in the fifties. Similarly, mm. you know African and Caribbean, mm. there was no what? Yeah, um, yeah. actually African Caribbean and Asian. It yeah, was uh, there was yeah. and, and the politics I grew up with in the early eighties, black was a term that meant yeah of what we yeah, say yeah, of yeah. color. It's today. crazily, it's crazily the recent. way things shift. That shift. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've kind of answered it in some ways, but the question that. I always like to end on is that notion of the ways in which your culture has impacted Britain, the wider world, or an aspect of it. And I guess we've covered food. Are there any other things about specifically about Ghanaian culture that you're encouraged by seeing kind of filtering out into to wider society or an impact? Well, so I suppose the thing that I would say is I am half Yorkshire, Lincolnshire mm. stock. Yeah, yeah, which so, is important. Which is which, super which important is really because important. it's, you know, it's half of my DNA. Yeah. I want the space to be able to be all the things that I am and it's okay. So um, I want the space to be able to talk about things and not have people say, go back where you came from because you want to go, which half of me would you like to send to Yorkshire and which half would you like to send to Cape Coast? Um, so I, I want the space to be able to be all of who who I am. Um, but again, you know, with all these things, it's about saying black lives matter, all lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. That's the point. But sometimes it's about reframing the balance of those things. Yeah. So I expect to see lots of Ghanaian culture in Ghana. And I expect the outworkings of that culture to be all around the world because we're a global world and Ghanaians get about a bit one way or another. I bumped into a, a woman in the market yesterday in Brixton Market who I'd met last year, who is doing her PhD at Oxford and her name's Adjua. Ah. And so uh, this morning I opened my emails to see if there's, a, a, there's an email from Adjua to Adjua. And there's a bit of me that goes, ha, ha, 
because you whoever met an I yeah. didn't meet an Agile growing up. Yeah, yeah. That so, little girl, that six-year-old girl is who this was going, like lying <laughs> in the field going like, what? So those things are delightful. Mm. But, you know, I'm just, I just want to be an equal opportunities mm. consumer of everything. Mm. But I love that. And I think that's a really important point because I think when you have a part of your culture that is maybe a bit more of a minority, um, is linked to like being your, your ethnicity and it can be this very strong, big thing that kind of, maybe pushes aside the the other aspects of mm. you but as you say you're a Leeds United fan you're a Yorkshire you know I you've am. got Yorkshire running through your veins Marching as well on together mm. <laughs> and so I think that's a really really good point and I think that is to your credit and completely in character because it's right it's we want all of it and why shouldn't we have it yeah the world is a rich and exciting lovely delicious place and we want to dive in and taste it while we can because blink and we're gone oh honestly thank you 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 said it beautifully and thank you for just giving us a little peek into the uh amazingness of your world uh adjoando thank you for joining me this has been great let's do it again in a, in a couple of years as per our schedule as per our schedule thanks for having me jimmy it's been great oh my pleasure thank you Adjua is just such an absolute delight. But what I really love about her is she does not kind of just let you off the hook easily. You've got to be on your toes. She's so sharp, so funny, so knowledgeable about history. And I just love that vision of her being this slightly (laughs) bold, tree-climbing kid in like the Cotswolds and moving through all these different worlds and places and coming to who she is now and she's just one of those people that you just want to listen to whatever she says she's so fascinating so funny so spirited um i enjoyed every minute of that um she was fantastic so that's it for the second series of where's home really with me jimmy famarewa I've had such an incredible time chatting to some amazing guests over the last 10 episodes and what a lineup from Andy Oliver and Nish Kumar and Nadia Hussain to Amir Khan, Monica Galetti and Corinne Bailey Ray. There have been some amazing, really memorable moments, whether it's Nadia describing her grandfather in Bangladesh and how he kind of wake up layabout children by kind of almost smoking them out by lighting hay on fire to Nish Kumar and his incredible reflections on what it's like to go through uh, a controversy like bread roll gate and to have his father and his brother kind of showing up for backup at his gigs and also to Andy Oliver and you know just her amazing stories of meeting Nena Cherry and getting on stage for her first performance in an outfit constructed from the curtains at her mum's house Uh, just so many memorable funny touching moments and you can catch up with all the conversations on your favourite podcast platform And don't forget to give us a follow and leave a review to help us spread the word. It really does help and make a difference. And if you've enjoyed Series 2 and want to listen to Series 1, a good place to check out would be our website, whereshomereally.com. From Podomo and Listen, this has been Where's Home Really, hosted by me, Jimmy Famarewa, with my brilliant team, 
Producers Tayo Popula and Aidan Judd. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudnow and Matt White. And for Listen is Kelly Redmond. <laughs>